Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. David became king of God's people in the year 1011 BC. During his 40-year reign, Israel prospered and David accomplished many great things. He unified the 12 tribes under his leadership. He conquered Jerusalem, establishing it as the new capital. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and through his military campaigns, he expanded Israel's border to include all the land that God had promised to Abraham a thousand years earlier. But there was one aspiration that David never got to fulfill. In spite of his desire to do so, he was not allowed to build a temple for God. That honor would be reserved for his son Solomon, who began the temple project shortly after becoming king himself. So we are now in the process in our series, Kings and Prophets, we're going to be talking about our third king, King Solomon. But it's really not about him, it's, it's more about this amazing architectural feat that his father desired, but that he would be the one to, 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 to accomplish. Um, turn to, in, in your Bibles uh, to First Chronicles, find it, it's in the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. Turn to First Chronicles, the end of the chapter. This is at the end of David's life. I want you to see something, and I want you to kind of reflect on it. I know that a number of you I had conversations with this week where you said, wow, I never noticed that text where David says, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. And I've heard a number of you say, wow, that was, that was a good reminder for me to hear. Well, I have another one for you. The Bible is full of them, by the way. I mean, just these amazing and powerful reminders of God's truth that we, as we're reading it, we don't stop and go, that, that, there's a lot more being said there. There's a lot that I can learn about God. There's a lot that I can learn about my own condition, my own expectations with God, which I'm constantly being challenged by, that God is God on his terms, not on mine. He's never asked me for my advice. He's never been dependent upon my work. And it's good for me to stop and remember that from time to time. No matter what, how noble I am, no matter how righteous I might consider myself, that God, it is still his prerogative to, to accomplish his plan under his timing. And that's the difference between me and him. But in First Chronicles chapter 28, and you all know that King David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man, sure he had some problems, but God loved him and, and, and never really rebuked him for his whole life. He definitely confronted David in his sin, but overall he said, I, I have no one else like this man that just pursues me with all of his heart. Even in his brokenness, he knows how to pursue me. This is God's understanding of David. And if God looks at David's heart and knows how pure it is and how wonderful it is, then can you only imagine that God would let David do whatever he wanted? Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 2 and 3, this is very interesting. David speaking to his, uh, his, his children and to his, his leaders near the time of his death, David says this, hear me, my brothers and my people, I had it in my heart, <laughs> meaning I, I really deeply desired this, I wanted this to be, and so here we have a man who is after God's heart, who has something in his heart, what could be better than that? What could be more pure than that? What could be more um, just wonderful? And God's got to say yes to this. But notice this. I had it in my heart to build a house for the rest of the ark of the covenant and of the Lord for the footstool of our God. And then I made preparations for building. So David has it in his heart. His heart is good. There's really nothing wrong with having a temple. It's God that God hates temples. God has nothing. We're going to see God's going to allow a temple to exist. 
Here you have David, the right man, with the right heart and all the preparations. He takes all of this to God. Here's my heart. Here's my preparations. But God said to me, you may not. Wow. Talk about crazy. So you're telling me that you can have the right heart, that you can work really, really hard, and that God might have another plan? What's the biblical answer to that? Yes. Just let that sink in for a little bit. That your heart might be right, your motives might be right, your planning might be right, everything might be right. And it's still not what God desires or what God wants. That, that, that doesn't just put you in your place. Like that humbly just puts me in my place. I constantly have to remind myself that God is God and I'm not. And that even the best of me is not. Even when I'm at my best, I'm not. And so David says, I really want to do this. God says, you may not build a house for my name. And then he gives a, na- a reason, interestingly enough. For you are a man of war and have shed blood. Now, if this were just David and somebody else, David would get into an argument. If this was just David and like someone who was the king of the kings, not the king of kings, but like the ruler over other kings, I can imagine David mounting out a pretty serious defense. Now, wait a second here. My heart is good. My intentions are good. There's nothing wrong with what I'm asking. You, You owe me this. No, but you're a man of blood. Well, yeah, but that was for you. Who did David kill Goliath for? Who did David expand the the, the national boundaries for? Was it not God? And God says, yes. David, there is nothing wrong with what you've done. I've asked you to do these things, but you're not me. You're still not going to get to do what you want, when you want it, even when you have the best of intentions. Like that should just, just like awaken us. I want to give you two words, and I don't want to use them, not, not by being overly critical, but I want to use them in a way that you can understand just how dangerous these words can actually be. The one word is religion. You know, religion has um, is, is, is been kind of a word that when we talk about the religions of the world, um, it, it's got a, it's, it's, over time it's becoming more of like an increasingly like a negative word, like religion. Like, I don't want religion, I want a relationship. Like, somehow that totally changes everything. But I want to use the word religion in kind of more of its formal sense. That there are religion, religious expressions, there is a, a code of ethics, there is a way that we live our lives. That's the word religion. The Bible says that pure and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. But there is a sense in which religion is, and it's been described this way, man's attempt to understand God. That man looks at the universe and he begins to write down about karma. He begins to write down about revelations or dreams that he had. That he begins to write down just common sense ways of looking at life. And you know what I'm beginning to think? I think what comes around goes around. Like that's religion. Man's attempt to understand God. Man's attempt to explain God. On the other extreme of that, which is really popular nowadays, and it's been popular for a while, I want to give you another word that you might go, isn't that a good word? But I want to say it's not always a good word, and that is the word spiritual. Spiritual. Man, I just, I'm a spiritual person. It's about spirituality. I've got a spiritual heart. You know, it's not about rules. It's just about me, you know, 
being me and me being real and the most real that I am when I really get down to the, like the, the me inside of me and then the little me inside of me like I'm the Russian doll and then the me inside of the me inside of the me, that, that is the real me. Like no matter what that is, that's just, that's just pure, pure goodness. Like, I'm just being true, man. I'm just being, that's just the way it is. I'm like a spiritual person. I went out into the woods the other day, and I walked around for almost 30 minutes just thinking. I'm a really spiritual person. Which basically, for many of us, we, we want to rebel so much against that religion, rules. We, the spirituality is just kind of this lost, mystic wandering. Now, I'll give you really a good example of this. In 1979, I remember um, f- falling in love with a baseball team that had a really strange hat. In 1979, the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the Baltimore Orioles for the World Series. And I was a young little boy, and I remember watching Willie Stargell and Kenta Colvey and all those guys, and I remember going, Mom and Dad, I want a hat like that. And I had a hat like nobody else had. Because in Toronto, the Blue Jays had just started, but I had a Pittsburgh uh, Pirates hat. And it's a strange-looking hat. It's kind of like this... The cylinder on my head is what it looked like, okay? It looked like I had a cylinder on my head, and I would wear this everywhere. I'd wear it to school, and they made me take it off when I got to school, and that made me very mad, but I had to take it off. And then at recess, I would wear my hat again, and I loved, loved, loved this hat. And then one day, I decided I was going to wear it, not to morning church, but to evening church, right? Morning church is serious church. But evening church, that's when the most religious people go. There's about eight of us, and we were all excited to be there. And I thought, I can wear my Pittsburgh Pirates hat to evening church, Right? Like, that's where there are spiritual people and not religious people, right? And as I walk in, I find out there's a religious man at church. And that religious man says to me, you cannot wear that hat in this building. This is a house of God. This is a holy place. You must take your hat off. And I remember feeling in my, I, did, I was a very obedient child, okay? Kind of, kind of crazy, but I was an obedient child on the outside. Dying on the inside, but obedient on the outside. And I just remember thinking, but my heart is good. Why can't I wear my hat? What's wrong with a hat? Who made you? Like, there's all these things that are kind of running in through my head. Are you serious? I don't understand you. I can't. There's going to be a day where I'm going to preach and I'm going to wear jeans and you can do nothing about it, buddy. Like, that's kind of what I want to do, right? Like, there is this, I'm truly spiritual. I just want to be me on my terms for the glory of God, but really on my terms, but for the glory of God. But I'm going to do stuff and then demand God accept it. And if he doesn't accept it, then I'm going to be mad and kind of change my understanding of God. But this is me over here in this spiritual state. Like I'm spiritual, loosey-goosey, spiritual gym. And I just hate religion. I just hate all the rules. I mean, honestly, doesn't, as long as your heart is good, what? Well, we're already beginning to see. As long as your heart is good, God's still God. Like he's still him. He's still God on his own terms. He's still God speaking truth. He's still God holding his own people accountable. And I want to warn you against both extremes. I mean, people that vacillate back and forth. See, there was something actually broken in me. I don't know how much I cared about God. I was excited about the Pittsburgh Pirates. I don't know how much I cared about God. I can wear a hat if I want to wear a hat. Why can't I wear a hat? How's that godly? I wasn't being godly, I was being spiritual. And we vacillate back and forth, not, not just culturally. I would even say individually, we vacillate back and forth between how does it have to be and can I do what I want as long as my motives are pure? And God offers another way. 
What we actually see in this story today is God's presence and God's promise being given to the people of Israel through this moment when God finally says to David's son Solomon, you can build a temple for me. I just want you to understand that this temple that you're going to build is not going to fix the problem. I mean, churches are great. They're a great place for us to come, great place for us to worship. We get to stay out of the rain, except when there's a couple of rows in here that still leak, right? But for the most part, it's, it's great. In the wintertime, when it gets cold, we have a place where we can be warm. I mean, it does. It becomes a place where we can gather, like hundreds of us can gather on a regular basis. We can sing songs to Jesus. We can eat the Lord's Supper. Like, this place has value and worth, doesn't it? And the answer is yes, it does. I'm grateful for the sacrifice that many have given so that we can come here and worship. Why is it so important that we understand how valuable it is and then how dangerous it can be? It's a lot like religion can be helpful, spirituality can be helpful, but they can also be deeply tainted by a broken heart. So here we begin with the prayer that has been offered up. We already found out that the place is coming And then Solomon decides, I'm going to. David gives everything he has to Solomon. Solomon kind of spends a number of years expanding his political borders, gaining massive amounts of wealth, and then he starts preparations and he builds this temple, this magnanimous, this beautiful building. And he builds it all the way up, and all of a sudden they have all of these sacrifices that are going to be given to God. They're going to dedicate it to God. They're going to give it over to him. But the danger of religious people or spiritual people making temples is when they open them up, they have a tendency to kind of open up the door and then go, here boy, here boy, get inside. Come on, God, come on, get in. Look what I made you. Come on, here, 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 get in. And the beauty of it is Solomon in his wisdom, he does have some, Solomon, in his wisdom, realizes that's just not the way it's going to be. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. Listen to this prayer. I mean, Solomon, honestly, as I read through it and read through it, I can't really discern anything that he says wrong. It's a great prayer. It's a great prayer to go back. I love listening to people pray because it gives me insight into their understanding of who God is. It gives me insight into their understanding of God and his relationship to them. And this is what we see with King Solomon. Verse 23, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. That is such a great thing to pray. When you're sitting down thanking God for a meal, you need to begin with God. There's no thing. There's no God. There's nothing at all in this universe that is like you. And I just need to remember that because it is easy for me to think you're just kind of like my boss. You're only stronger. You're like my boss, only you know more. You're like my boss, only you're, you're probably better. Even though I have a hard time seeing it sometimes, the Bible says you're better and gooder, and so I have to believe those things. But God, you're kind of like everything I know that's big, like a king except only a little bit bigger. No, there's nothing like him. There's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath. Why? Notice how it's described. Why is there no God like him? Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the word chesed in the Hebrew, meaning covenantal love, meaning this kind of love. Like no matter what she does, I'm faithful. 
I don't give some kind of, well, you know what, she, well, then I, you know what, she blew it, so now I. No, no, no. Covenantal faithful love to the end, beyond, over and above the other side's failure. That's how radically different our God is than every other God. Every other God, religion works. Every other God, spirituality works, but not our God. Our God is neither confined he is, he is, he's never manipulated. He's never exploited by our spirituality or our religiousness, is he? There's nothing like him. Showing steadfast love to your servants, covenantal love to your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. So even notice how this is being described. God, your covenantal love is you are always faithful like your covenant promises as we walk before you with all our hearts. You have kept um, so of all your heart, you have kept uh, with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised to him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, meaning their, their way of living, their way of worshiping, their way of honoring God. If they pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed. There's a great way to pray. You ever pray like in accordance with the word of God? Or do you only know how to pray in accordance with your greatest felt need at the moment? And this is why a lot of our prayers feel strange or maybe even sometimes selfish. I'm not even saying they are or aren't, but they feel that way. Why? It's because we're not praying in accordance with what God has already said. We're not praying in accordance with who God already is and how God already acts, asks, acts is what I meant to say, A-C-T-S, acts. It's not in accordance with that. It's more in accordance with like what's going on in my heart right now and I've done a pretty good job. I don't know why you don't owe me this. All I'm asking for you to do is make my sister healthy. Well, who does that hurt? What's going on here? I'm not paying in accordance with his word. I'm not paying, praying in accordance that he, there's no one else like him. I'm praying in accordance with what I would do if I were him. How many of you, when you pray, feel like you're at some level talking to a better version of yourself? It's not prayer. It's not what, it's not, that's not who he is. So Solomon says, I'm just asking you, God, let your words be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. And then I love the second part of his prayer. This is where you really see Solomon gets it. This is a great moment. This kind of pulls us out of our religiosity, rules, rules, rules. This pulls us out of our spirituality, but I can do what I want. I can I do what I want? Can I wear what I want? This kind of pulls us back to a God-centered understanding of what worship is, and worship is that life response to who God is. He says, verse 27, but will God, and we, it will, will God indeed dwell on the earth? See, that's the question. Here, boy. Like, could, could I build something that God could be, could God even, could God even be stuck on the earth? And so notice how he responds. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built for you. Can you imagine 
building something this incredible and at that opening moment, that dedicatory moment, the cutting of the string or the breaking of the wine bottle that you literally stand up and go, yeah, I know it's not much. Can you imagine? I mean, try to imagine living in a city where we would spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build this shrine, okay? And then at the opening day, when we're all there to celebrate this wonderful building that so many people have sacrificed hundreds of millions of dollars for, going, yeah, that's the little thing that we made for you. I know it's not much. No, you wouldn't say that. This is amazing. It's beautiful. I still drive by the stadium and go, wow, that's a nice-looking stadium. But really, all I have to compare it to is like, you know, football stadiums in Canada, which is like 12 guys with folding chairs, okay? So it's a totally different thing. What Solomon does is he looks at this amazing building, and it is amazing. It is amazing. It's wonderful. But then he looks at God and goes, yeah, I don't know how this is going to fit. It can't. He is humbled. We're impressed. He is humbled with his relationship with God. See, that is the picture that changes religion into, man, these rules seem pretty small. And spirituality, man, I myself seem pretty selfish and small. The only thing that transforms that is the presence of God. Solomon feels it. Where, what could I build you? Verse 28, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and his plea. In essence, Like, I know I've got nothing. I'm just, I'm begging you, God. I'm begging you in accordance with your word. Oh, Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place where you have said, notice the prerogative of God, where you have said, my name will be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers today toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Now he keeps talking about this place, this place. You you might think, man, is is he missing the point? Is he becoming religious? But look at this next part of that last verse, verse 30. And listen in heaven. (laughs) He hasn't forgotten where God is. Like God, when we turn towards the place, remember, this is the place where you said your name would be. When we turn towards this place, when we look towards this place, will you look down from heaven, which is your place? Well, everywhere is your place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Because he then goes on in this prayer, just describing failure after failure after failure just feels a little bit like a wedding where everything looks beautiful, but you just know they're going to go home and be married and it's going to be hard. It's, it's kind of like decorating your child's room, you know, the, the, the room that you made, you had it t- totally done for your child and it's perfect because they're still not home yet, they're still at the hospital, you know? And then they come home and then it just gets complicated and difficult because the idealized life on a stage holding hands or the idealized life Okay, we have to take him home now. I mean, it's real life. Solomon knows this. And Solomon knows Israel's past. He knows his father's failure. He's aware of all of these things. And the only thing that keeps bringing him back, because he's always tempted, well, if we just had more rules. Well, you know what? If we just freely followed our hearts. What does Solomon say? God, I ask you this. 
when we fail, when we struggle, may we, when we turn towards this place, and you can read his prayer this afternoon, and when we repent, and when we turn, and when we acknowledge our sin, and when we, and over and over and over again, Solomon is pleading with God that at that moment of brokenness, just like you did with my servant David, just like you have always done, remember your covenant love. Remember your steadfast love. See, I think some of us, when we sing that song about love like a hurricane and an unforeseen kiss, it's almost more like a love song between you and like your girlfriend or boyfriend. Oh, you just love me so much. I know, I'm so lovable. Like I know, you look at me, you, yeah, I totally get why Andrea loves you. I totally get it. It makes total sense. I totally see. I see how you just love her and care for her and serve her and only speak tenderly and kindly to her. I totally get why she loves you. We look at people. I, I don't understand why he doesn't love her. I mean, she's an absolutely great person. I don't know why she doesn't love him because he's an absolutely great person. And so we sing some of these songs about God's amazing love and we don't realize that his love is so amazing because we are so religious and he still loves us anyway. And we're so selfishly spiritual and it's amazing that he loves us anyway. Is that not crazy? When you sing that song, it, it should almost just kind of catch you. It's not, oh, how he loves me and I'm just so lovable. It's, oh, how he loves me. And it doesn't make sense. Like, it's hard for me to believe if it wasn't for the fact that he said it and if it wasn't for the fact that he showed it, if it wasn't for the fact of him persisting in my life, I couldn't believe he could love me. That's the shocking part of that song. And Solomon gets that. Well, what is God's response to this? It's interesting, turn to 1 Kings chapter 9, the next chapter. God doesn't remain silent. Many prayers, God doesn't say something. This is one of those moments where God is going to speak and speak rather clearly. And interestingly enough, he doesn't say, hey Solomon, that was a terrible prayer. He also doesn't say, hey Solomon, you can pray any way you want and as long as it's real and from your heart, every prayer is the same to me, man. Two lies that you've heard about prayer. You have to pray like this. And say whatever you want and just be real. Yeah. Foolish, foolish. God seems to really like um, hear Solomon's prayer, and we're interesting enough, he agrees with him. Why? Because his covenant, steadfast love, confirmed by his word, like Solomon's just reciting to God what God has already said he's going to do, and God says, yes, I'm going to do it, but let me remind you what you asked. That's kind of what he's saying here. Let me remind you what you asked. You asked for me to lend you some money and then to hold you accountable to pay it back, kind of a scenario, right? God's saying, let me remind you of what you asked, this covenant that I have, and the covenant is, as you remain faithful, I will continue to bless you. And when you begin to rebel against me, then I will redeem you through a very difficult means. And here is how God describes it, beginning in verse three. God says, I have heard your prayers and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated, literally, I've made holy. I've done something very special with that place. I have consecrated this house that you have built, putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God is saying, 
yes, I love it, I'm there, I will do this for you, Solomon. But let's remember how covenants work. Let me explain to you how this covenant responsibility and my steadfast love, let me explain to you how this works. Verse four, and as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked. Solomon's response, you're telling me I can never make a mistake? No, that's not what I said. Do you know how to break? So you're telling me I have to be just like my father? Yes. Well, what aspect of my father? You're telling me I have to go kill a giant? Yeah, no, 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 I'm telling you. You missed the point. Do you have a heart like your father? Are, are you able to recognize the danger of religiosity, the selfishness of spirituality, and do you know how to just love me, honor me, follow me, respond to me when I whistle? Do you know how to do that? Because if you do, he says, and do this just like your father David walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised your David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And then, but, if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, this is kind of interesting. Or your children. Well, what, what responsibility do I have for my kids? Solomon could respond back, to which God, I believe, would say, some. Like some. We want to say none. We want to say all. The answer is some. But this covenant that God made is not just with, even this covenant with David is not just with David. It's with David's people. And it's ultimately for God's glory, not human benefit. God's covenants have always been for his glory. And then we get the benefit, we are, we're the benefit recipients of this. So he says to him, but if you turn aside from me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but you go and you serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from this land that I've given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples, literally like a slang, like a, a negative slang word is what he's saying there. Like you will no longer be this wonderfully blessed nation, but you'll be like, a, like, like, like the, the bottom of society, so to speak. And I'm gonna use that term to describe you because of how low you will be brought. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished. They will hiss. Ooh. They will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to his house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all of this disaster on them. God makes it very clear. There is no way, hear me, brothers and sisters, because this transcends into our time. There is no way for us, through spirituality or religiosity, to please God. There is absolutely no way that you and I, by building a house or not building a house, by wearing a suit or not wearing a suit, by wearing a Pittsburgh Pirates hat or not, there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do to please God and to win his favor. 
Now Israel, they were in danger of believing that somehow, because God says, I have blessed you, that they were now in the driver's seat, that they were the ones now of a privileged position, and they could now claim that privilege and keep claiming that privilege. They thought that now that they've been religious enough, they could have their lives back and do exactly what they wanted. They thought that since I'm in a relationship with God, and I've heard preachers even describe this today, now that you're a child of God, he's just here to bless you. He's just here to take care of you. He's here to serve you. And what do you want? He'll give it to you. Now you need a formula. You need to do X and Y and you'll get Z. That's never been God's plan. That's never been the way God works. God makes it very clear to Solomon, I have agreed to do this. This will still always be done on my terms. I will always be faithful to my covenant. And my covenant says this, that as you walk in my ways, I will bless you. But when you reject me and go to serve other gods, then my judgment will come. And that's exactly what happens. As we're going to see as the series unfolds, the temple's coming down. Because the people decided to replace a genuine, heartfelt expression and relationship with God that wasn't selfish and it wasn't vain and empty. They decided to replace that with like a religiosity on their own terms. They decided to replace this with this. And God brought it all down. So does it end there? No, it doesn't end there. Because even in the midst of our brokenness, even in the midst of our rebellion against God, his overall plan for us is not done. You know, it's amazing to me that hundreds of years later, Jesus walks onto the scene, and what does he see, okay? He sees another temple. This temple here that Solomon builds is going to be destroyed in roughly 586 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Empire of Babylon. And it gets torn down, like completely destroyed. Hundreds of years later, a man comes upon the scene, becomes kind of the king of the Jews, so to speak. Not Jesus, but another one else we'd like to be called king of the Jews. His name was Herod the Great. He was part Jewish. And Herod the Great builds a temple that is bigger and better than the first one. Herod makes this magnificent, beautiful place for the worship of God and it is that temple that Jesus walks on the scene on and he sees the people doing the same thing that the people in the Old Testament did coming into church not church coming into temple it's weird saying that coming into the temple doing their thing singing some songs offering a goat here and there and then walking out and then living their life every way they wanted to being unjust, being unkind, being selfish, being sexually immoral. Can you imagine a people doing that? Could you, it's hard to imagine. Just try to imagine people that would come into a place like this on Sunday and worship God and hold in their hands the body and the blood of their murdered Savior for their redemption and then leaving this building and going back like their lives were still theirs on their own terms. Can you imagine people like that? I can. Like, except by the grace of God, that's me. I'm still trying to figure out to how to work God on my terms. I still am tempted to become a rule maker or just be totally real with myself all the time. 
And Jesus walks into that scene in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Jesus walks in and the disciples make the same statement. Look at this incredible building. Isn't it amazing? And Jesus says, it's all coming down. Like no matter what you try to build to impress God and to get him in your back pocket, it'll never work. It doesn't matter what you build. It doesn't matter how righteous you are. It's never about the place and it's never about you. It's always about him. And it always will be about him. And the truth is, he knows the truth about our hearts. So much that he sent Jesus to die for our wicked hearts. He he sent Jesus to die so that we could have a new heart. And so our challenge from this idea this morning is that we would stop becoming temple builders or temple destroyers and just stop and say, God, I want you on your terms. I want you. I want, I want Jesus. I want your king of kings. I want your plan for all of this. I, every time I do this, I end up with a new religion or a new sense of spirituality and it still leaves me broken and not in relationship with you. God, I need you. Now that's real religion. That's true spirituality. That's what God's wanted from the very beginning. Speaking of very beginning, it begins in a garden. And there's no temple. It's just Adam and Eve and a bunch of trees. Animals running around. I mean, it's just an incredible place. And there's complete, like, union between them and God. God's presence is described as in their midst. And after they get thrown out of the garden, they begin to build. And then they need temples. And God says, and the They're rebellious and rebellious. The Bible ends, though, in an interesting place. Revelation chapter 21, 22. You know what? You know what the the revelation makes very, very clear? Guess what will not be in heaven? The new heaven and the new earth. Guess what will not be in the new heaven and the new earth? You know what it is? Temple. Here's what it says. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So I don't know if you're looking forward to some beautiful temple when you get to the new heaven and the new earth, but it's not going to be there. Instead, what's going to be in the middle, that should be in the middle, that should be in the middle, that should be in the middle, was what was always intended to be in the middle. His name is God. His son is Jesus. His Holy Spirit is in those who get this. And it was God's plan from the very beginning because you can never replace God with anything and be satisfied. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you for this text and its reminder. I thank you for the warnings against spirituality and religiosity. God, both of them allow me to manipulate you and that just totally goes against who you are. Father, it would be easy for me to kind of make up some cool slogan or statement about how all paths to you are the same, how convenient. God, it would be easy for me to think as long as my heart is right and as long as my heart is real, then how could God have any, well, that's also convenient. God, I just pray that we would be a people that want to know who you are, the truth about you, to experience your steadfast covenantal love. To recognize that, yes, we are broken, but we worship you and we worship you alone. When we are righteous, it is for your name's sake. When we are broken, it is to confess and to receive your forgiveness. God, when we pray, 
wherever we are. May you hear us and forgive us. And what a blessing that we know how you do that through Jesus, your one and only. It's in his name we pray, amen.